What if you could get really good grief support for just $3 a month? If you're navigating life after loss, but are a little tight in the money department, consider becoming a patron of Coming Back on Patreon. Listeners who support this podcast on Patreon receive weekly grief journaling prompts released every Monday morning and a once a month private grief hangout with me. If you're looking for an easy, inexpensive way to stay in touch with your grief, become a patron now at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. Your monthly pledge helps me keep this podcast on the air and allows me to produce online courses, books, and very special grief experiences for grievers just like you. Get started now at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today I'm speaking with Victoria Markham, creator of the award-winning documentary, Remember, about the sudden death of her son, Koa. We'll talk about releasing guilt surrounding the death of someone you love, how to avoid cultural appropriation when performing grief rituals, and the ways in which grief shows up even years and years after a loss. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, grief growers, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to get to this interview, so I won't give you too much here at the top of the show, but I will tell you that a grief story that I have never shared publicly went live recently over at modernloss.com. The title of the article is, My Bizarre Childhood Wish Showed Up in My Mom's Cremains, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the story of the year after my mom's death, where my family and I went to the Redwoods in California to scatter her ashes. Somehow I ended up getting the last handful of ashes of her cremains, and there was something in there that turned out to be a dream come true for me. That's all I'll say about it here, but if you'd like to read the article, it's totally free over at modernloss.com. You can find a link in the show notes or search Shelby for Scythia over at modernloss.com. And if you've been listening to Coming Back long enough, you'll remember that I had the founders of Modern Loss, Rebecca and Gabby, on Coming Back Season 6 and Episode 87. That was a really great conversation about parent loss in your 20s and 30s, if you'd like to go back and listen to that episode. Also, one last thing, grief growers, I've been getting some fantastic submissions for my next project, which is a book about friendship and grief. If a friend of yours has grown distant or ghosted you, or even asked you to stop talking about your grief, or forced you to see the bright side of a situation, or any number of other yucky things that can happen between friends and the aftermath of loss, I really, really want to hear your story for my new book. Please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash friends to submit your story about friendship and grief. And of course, you can find a link to that project as well in the show notes. Alrighty, let's get to today's interview. 
drawing on resources from indigenous cultures, personal experience, and study in the fields of trauma and eco-psychology, Victoria Markham is a powerhouse on a mission to redesign the way we view grief and heal trauma in our Western, modern culture. Victoria brings a fresh and needed perspective to those who are walking the lifelong path of bereavement through ritual and community. She is the founder of the 501c3 Life Cycle Global in Ashland, Oregon, the creator of programs for Life Cycle Center, and the producer of the documentary film, Remember. Victoria, I'm so glad you're here with us today on Coming Back to share your story and talk about the project that came from it. So if you could please start off with your lost story for us. Great. I was, uh, you know, mother of two little boys. I had Koa, who was three, almost four, and Bannon, who was seven and a half, and uh, been married for, at that point, 14, 15 years. And we own a home on five acres here in Ashland, Oregon. And I was uh, out for the day and I was on my way home. Uh, I drove down the driveway. It's kind of a ritual where the boys would run off the yard and come up to my truck and I would bring home some sort of treat. And then they would run through the garden and over to my parking spot. And this day, uh, somehow my youngest, Koa, um, followed my car instead of running through the garden. And his brother was running through the garden and I just assumed that Koa was behind him. And when I turned into my parking spot, my little one Koa got uh, in between my car and the rock wall and I didn't see him. And I turned into my parking spot and my tire knocked him over and he fell and he hit his head on the rock wall. And I got out of the car. I saw him in the review mirror and I got out of the car and I thought, you know, broken leg, something injured, maybe knocked out, but never did it cross my mind that death was imminent, you know, until I turned him over and I, I could see clearly he was in the active dying process. And so I, you know, I swooped him up and put him in the car. We lived close to a fire station and I felt like that was the the fastest way to get the help I needed. And so I had somebody calling 911 and I was driving him around the block to the fire station. And by the time I got there and got him out of the car, he just pretty much died in my arms right then. And of course, you know, the the on-site personnel did everything they could as well as the ambulance and then on to the emergency room. But it was clear that, you know, that he was already gone. And so um, in the emergency room, they had him all hooked up and they were doing all of this, you know, work to try and save his life. And of course, that, that makes your heart race. Like maybe there's a chance, you know, I uh, don't know how far back from the dead you can be brought. And um, at one point I, I sat down by his head and was stroking his hair and just talking to him, you know, and just letting him know that um, if he didn't want to stay, if he wasn't meant to be here, that I would let him go. And I got this really strong voice inside that just said, Mama, I'm, I'm too hurt. And if I come back, I'll never be able to live a normal life. You know, I just want to go. And at that point, I just stood up and screamed. And that merciless mother scream, you know, just stop, you know. And everybody just pulled back. And he took the monitors off and and then began the grief journey of just really what it was to, to let him go, you know. 
um, the projects that came out of that, you know, came to me kind of on a, a, the wind, you know, I was just pursuing all kinds of cultures and readings and understandings about death and dying, you know, just really looking into how to save myself. I, I think that the culture I belong to here believes this is the worst thing that could happen to anybody. You know, there was a lot of big gray blankets, as my teacher Zenith would say, you know, put over me as irrecoverable and and just, you know, watched like I was going to go off the deep end. And I was determined to not let that be my story <clears throat> for many reasons. Um, and I, I sought out various cultures and different ways of grieving and death and dying outside of the American culture. And I realized that there were so many intact cultures that really had ways to process grief and that we had pretty much made grief extinct in our culture, you know, traded it in for the joy and the happiness of life. And that, you know, when grief hit, it was something you wanted to get rid of as soon as possible, you know, and I tried the grief groups and all kinds of things here. And it was like in the middle of old folks' homes, you know, with a tissue and a teddy bear in the middle of the room and everyone just gray and looking down and, you know, eyes cast down and no energy in the room. And I was just not, I was not going to let that be my story. And I started uh, doing some training, you know, because really the most intelligent conversation I felt like people were having in America was, was in the death doula trainings, you know. So I started um, sitting bedside for people and going to trainings about death doula uh, work. And on the way home from one training, I was with a friend, and I, she said, can you tell me the story of Koa's death? And I just shared it with her, and she said, I feel like, I'm, I, feel like I just watched a movie. And a lot like everything else along the grief process, in between the like really down, can't get off the ground stages, were just these moments of total clarity of just like, go here next, you know. And I had this light go off in my head that just said, you're going to make a movie. And it's like, I'm going to make a movie, you know, like, I don't know the first thing about making a movie. I don't know anybody who makes movies, you know, I don't have any clue, but I, I felt the compelling nature of my story in the culture and whether that came from the morbid curiosity of people and, or just people that I had crossed paths with that were trying to really maneuver grief. I felt like there was energy for it in this culture to be received. And I, I I told my friend that I was sitting with that I had thought maybe I would make a movie. And she said, well, I have a friend who's a documentary filmmaker and she's coming next week. And so the story goes that I met with, you know, Katie Teague and uh, she indeed did uh, take on my documentary. And, you know, she wrote the story and uh, just told me where to be and, and how to do it. And I just continued to do my grief work with others and, um, intertwine my life with intelligence around grief and out came this film, which has turned out to be a very personal story. You know, it is the story of my life intertwined with the story of my son's death, intertwined with my failing marriage, intertwined with, you know, me uh, and my offerings into the world and the grief world. I feel like I have a good solid five-year contribution here that I need to make into the grief world. It's just too... It's too naked, you know, the grief world in our culture to turn away from. And knowing what I had to walk through and what I maneuvered and 
what I was able to collect as resources, I just can't consciously turn away from the people who are coming next and not make a contribution. I really feel passionate that that uh, those uh, of us that are grievers and we are making it through somehow, and I don't mean getting over, I mean making it through, that it's our responsibility to turn around and to help and show others how to do the same because there's just nowhere to go in our culture. There's just nowhere to go. There's people, beautiful people like you who are, you know, sending out the word that there's not enough of us. And so I'm collecting people and creating resources and uh, giving back. And right now my film is out and I'll tell you how to see that at the end of the podcast. I do want to drop the name of it really quickly for anybody who wants to pause the podcast and look it up. What's the name of the documentary? You can find it under remember, all one word, R-E-M-E-M-B-E-R, doc, D-O-C, dot com. So rememberdoc.com and everything you need to know is on the website there, including if you want to bring the film to your own community, uh, there's showing packages and, and, and Katie's organized everything really beautifully on the website. I've seen it before and, um, and that's really exciting to have all put together. I will tell you, I have a lot of questions in a lot of different directions. I think we could go with our conversation. The first one that really sprang forward for me are these three words. I literally wrote them down in all caps, fault, responsibility, and guilt. And this is not the first time on this podcast that we've had someone come on and inadvertently caused an accident where their child died. Uh, grief growers who are listening who don't know what I'm talking about can go back and listen to the episode with Julie Clough. Um, and I wonder how you have reckoned with this notion of, I was the one in the driver's seat. You know, interesting enough, I think that there was probably 99% of the people around me that really feared that that would be, you know, the, the, the pitfall for me. And I don't know what saved me there, honestly, Shelby. I could, I could name a bunch of things, but I'm just going to, for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you that um, it just never came for me. You know, the guilt never came for me. It just didn't, it didn't process through my mind that I would ever do anything to ever hurt my child, you know? So therefore, if I were to take on guilt, I would have to say, I'm guilty for what? You know, I was not speeding. I was not on substance. I was not negligent. I was not not paying attention. Um, and even if I, even if those things were true too, like the the cycle of guilt is really just not a serving energy when it comes to grief. It, it it does need to be processed if it's present. But for me, I just felt like Victoria, you would have never done anything to hurt Koa ever, ever, ever. And so, therefore, we're not going to go down that road. There's so many other things that you have to take care of. So, it's just my health and the state that I arrived at Koa's death in was in a resolve around that way of thinking already. And so, when I hit Koa with my car and the guilt was the question, it just, my mind was already too healthy for that. And my spirit was already on to how am I going to save my other boy and what do I do to save myself and my family? And 
I just didn't do it. I didn't go there. And I can tell you, I don't know how these things work. I don't reach into the other side of the mystery. I've crossed the veil of myself several times in different ways, but I leave it a mystery. And I can tell you that my son's death was not meant to destroy me. It was not meant for some sort of self-help inversion onto what kind of person I am or am not. It was really it was really just his path off the planet. And I really believe that I'm in life that path. And that can sound really strange in the modern day world, the way we think about things, because we're supposed to be taking responsibility. And so I did take responsibility. I picked him up. I took him to the hospital. I laid there. I bawled with him. I wept him. I cried him for years. I ritualized him. I turned around and gave back to my culture and my community. To me, that is responding with an ability. And so I did take responsibility and I continue to take responsibility for the life I created and the life that I was a part of um, taking off this planet. And the two uh, bookends there are weaved together in a really powerful way to, to give life and to take life. And so there's a whole podcast probably I could do just on that. I get chills hearing you say this because that's something that's never crossed my mind before and I'm sure has never crossed the minds of other grief growers who are listening because I think so much of, and maybe this is a, a product of grief culture in the Western world, but so much of it is how can I take all of this pain and turn it right back in on myself via guilt, shame, blame, fault, responsibility, in all of these dark, shadowy ways. And I can't tell you how many grievers I hear from, especially those whose children have died, whether as a byproduct of their actions or something totally otherwise, there's still this circling story of, I am somehow at fault. I caused this. I made this happen. This was a result of something that I did, whether just as a parent entity or literal actions that were taken. So this reframing of response ability to respond to what happened as opposed to take and shoulder all of the blame for what happened is very, very eye-opening. And yeah, I think you're right. I think when you just say it out loud and it's one sentence, it can sound really trite. <laughs> um, but in practice, I mean, at least in your world, it sounds like something that you've leaned into over and over and over again is how can I respond to this? And you've made it the focus of your world in a different way. Absolutely. It's just um, what, you know, what is it going to do? And I don't negate, you know, what I'm saying doesn't negate the people that are carrying guilt and shame, but I would venture to say that it comes um it comes from other places, you know, we're already a, a guilty or shame-ridden kind of person in ourselves or, you know, there's already that pre-existing notion that of cause and effect, you know, and I think, you know, we hurt each other all the time, you know, on the face of the earth, you know, and what does it mean to take responsibility for the ways that we interact and the ways that we affect another and is that to invert on ourselves and become shameful? You know, it doesn't go anywhere. That actually just creates more conflict between you and the person. It creates more 
uh, work and distance. And then eventually when you get healthy enough, you come to the place where you can respond with ability. And so I've always really, I've always really believed and have made a practice in my life out of um, preparing for hard times. You know, I, if you see the film, you'll notice a theme in my life. It started very young where there was just tremendous amounts of, of horrible, horrible things to survive, you know, things that we consider in this culture really unlucky. And I knew from the start of life pretty much at cognitive level that I, that I was here to kind of field a lot of energy. <laughs> and so I, I hung out with some very intelligent people that really helped me understand how to maintenance myself all along the way. And I really believe that, you know, part of my whole understanding that I'm trying to create in the grief world is that, you know, let's just get percentages because our world loves them. So, you know, 80% of, of how you will feel when you grieve is, is how you already feel in your life today, you know, and, 80% of how you will grieve depends on how much grief work you've been able to do when that big event hits your life, you know, and it's not if, it's when. And so grief work really happens in advance, you know. It's not something you wait until the big grief happens and then you have to, like, completely go through every last bit of grief all at once over time, you know. If you do the maintenance in your life and you... And you look, you know, for places where you can continue to empty out and clean your psyche and clean your, your physical body out of the grief and clean your disappointments out and your sadnesses and help with your thinking and how you see life. You know, when those bigger griefs happen, there's actually a thing called post-traumatic growth, you know, where people excel after large uh, griefs, you know, not without sadness but they'll actually come into a place of resource rather than a place of lack or guilt or shame. So I don't want everybody listening to be vetted for this downward spiral of grief. Some of us and some of you actually will find it invigorating and life enforcing and make you want to live more and do more and be more than sit in a puddle of guilt and shame and, and sadness, you know, and to me, you're going to experience it all, you know, but how long you stay in each of those stages is directly relational to your, your mental health at the time that something occurs in your life. You know, I happen to have been in a very uh, sound mind and, and healthy spiritual state when Koa died. So I give thanks for that. I agree with this idea of post-traumatic growth. This is something that uh, we've also discussed previously on coming back and I've seen operate in my own world as well, because there is an inevitable growth that comes from grief. That's the tagline of this podcast is because even through grief, we are growing. It's because through this experience, no matter what, you are doing things, seeing things, feeling things, learning things that you would not have otherwise had you not grieved. And there is growth in that, even if you don't see it immediately, recognize it, or even lean into it. So I think growth is definitely a reality in the aftermath of loss. I want to talk about, and you mentioned this just a little bit, the impact that Koa's death had on your other son, um, kind of logistically, whether there was a fear of cars in your house that kind of came up 
after Koa's death or like the ritual of running to the driveway again, if that changed at all, and maybe how your relationship changed alongside him as well. Yeah, well, you know, immediately one of the healing, you know, one of the healing paths I took was to create ritual, like all over the place. And so the ritual, you know, ritual is kind of a plug word in, in you know, previous cultures, um, more intact cultures, and we consider it spiritual in our culture, but it's not, you know, it's a ceremony. It's like a birthday, all the rituals that we do to live, you know, they're, to me, it's psychology in motion. It's just the act of movement and objects and using your psyche and objects to move energy. It's a nonverbal way to heal. And part of my ritual that I did was to completely make a walkway and, and cut off the whole part of that driveway, remove the rock wall. I took the stone that he hit his head on and I made his headstone out of it and had it carved with his name. And the rest of the rock wall was torn away and hauled off. And I made a beautiful rock uh, a, a beautiful walkway to that spot and I put in a memorial garden for him and so nobody ever drove down that that path ever again you know um, my son my older son is now almost 14 and I would say that children have a different timeline for grieving um, I would say that right now what I'm seeing <clears throat> out of my son is the grief and yes you know, for years, we went all over the world. He traveled to Mexico with us to do Dias de las Muertes. You know, we went to Navajo Reservation out in Arizona. We would do elaborate, you know, seekings. And he always was there with us doing it all, you know. And, of course, it looked like he was just going to be fine. And I don't know, I'd say maybe three years ago, it started where he just collapsed. And his nervous system went down and he started uh, spending time in his room and not really coming out. And now it's near impossible to get him into a car. And so we are experiencing the PTSD with Banyan now, you know. Um, and it was true is that I noticed everybody had their own timing. We just all took turns, you know. And I don't think he could really grieve until he saw his parents on their feet, you know. And once we were kind of back up and on our feet again, especially me, we had another baby. I had my daughter, Coral, when I was 43. Um, she's the rainbow baby, and she's five now. And, you know, until life kind of came to a little bit more of a homeostasis here, I don't think my son was going to let in any of the emotions. And, um, you know, so we're in an active process of healing with him now, you know, and here it is seven years later. And so you never know when that grief is going to hit. A lot of people feel feel okay for years and then don't, you know. And that would be uh, my son, you know, for sure. That's a really great reminder to have out there in the world because even, I mean, even for adults, one of the things that I hear the most often is, it's been 10 years. Why am I still thinking about this? I'm like, because it wasn't, you didn't get it out in the first wash. You know what I mean? It's like, we got to, we got to, process this again and again and again and through different stages and different lifetimes and different i mean he knows more now at 14 than he did then when koa died and so he's got more life experience and more exposure to you and the new baby as well and so there's just much more information to assimilate and the fact remains that my younger brother is not here and so continuing to grieve that together is really hard so like uh 
in the forefront of my mind almost always when working with grievers is this word, of course. Like, of course, we would see this again almost seven years later. And that's okay. Like, that's just how it shows up for him. And that's okay. Um, I think the next place I want to move into with you is this process of seeking, because this is a big conversation right now about how are we ensuring that we are culturally appreciating as opposed to culturally appropriating and taking these rituals from other spaces that don't necessarily belong to us and using them for our purposes and then discarding the rest. So I wonder if you've given any thought to that uh, in your work as you've processed Koa's death and then made this documentary that's now out in the world. Absolutely. You know, I, and mind you, I've been given permission, you know, to use ceremony that I've been exposed to. And I still, um, culturally, I will participate, but I do not take from other people's cultures and try and mimic and or repeat, you know, what it is that, that they have taught me. There's some basic things you'll see in the film, like smudging, but, you know, my Native American auntie, I call her auntie, um, was there. And, you know, I feel when they're present, it's okay for me to practice what they practice because that's more out of respect, you know, that I would use smudge on her and that I would use smudge in her presence or do, you know, prayer ties, things that, you know, that come from her tradition. When, when I have somebody traditional with me, I will use their practices out of respect. When I'm in a group of my own Caucasian um, people or, um, you know, there's no cultural uh, known ceremony present in a circle, I stay away from those things, honestly. I believe that um, there's too much anger and resentment and there's also so much grief that hasn't been resolved culturally about how we've crossed over with our indigenous. And so that's a whole nother thing. It was really important to me when I was asked, um, you know, to do a grief ritual for the film. One of my major components was I will not put anything uh, from my indigenous families in there. I, I have to have a, a, a grief ritual that is repeatable uh, for anybody. And I don't want um, to take um, you know, from other cultures to do it. And so I sat a long time with a couple of things like the Kintsugi, which I do, you know, in my ritual of bowl breaking and then painting the mines with gold. And I looked up online and called somebody who is from the Japanese culture and asked, and this is a, this is cross-cultural. It doesn't belong to one culture. So there was a permission there to go ahead and use it. Um, there's, there's so many things we can do, so many ways we can be with each other that that does not become cultural and culturally inappropriate. And using water and fire, and using um, you know altars and ritual, has you know been around all the way through the European times. This is not just indigenous cultures that did that. Actually, the you know, the, I mean, that just goes into a whole nother level of conversation. I'll just say that we as European people had, you know, the use of water and fire and bathing and steam and cleansing and all sorts of ways of using herbs and things to help cleanse ourselves. But we lost our ceremonies, you know, so we don't have them. 
so I, I really feel like wailing and crying and making altars and breaking things and gluing them back together and using fire and water to cleanse. These are all things that are human. They're not, they don't belong to anybody. So to me, I call it rewilding. Like the grief ritual has to be a sense of rewilding where we kind of go back to what is given to us through the wild nature of, of the earth we belong to and those plants and those things and that fire and that water and all those things do not belong to anybody. They're not anybody's. We've all used them. Every culture on the earth has used them. So those are the things I really like to stay with. Thank you for going there with me because I know in this day and age with everybody, not everybody, a lot of people making the complaint that everything these days is too PC. I'm like really conscious of the things I do now that exclude the actual culture and then take from just the practice. And I've never had that conversation in a grief space before. So thank you for for going there with us and pointing to this idea that there are things that have belonged to many, if not all cultures across time that are quote unquote, like safe to use or accessible immediately to all. Um, and honoring too, that in some instances like the bull breaking um, or like other practices, I either practice them only in the presence of people who they belong to, or I've gone to somebody who can grant permission or who can train me in this and give me the history of it so that I can practice with that full wisdom. I just think that's really, really important um, as well. I want to um, point out something that you said is that a lot of the work that you do is about rewilding. And I instantly kind of clicked into my brain this notion of going back to old traditions, going back to our roots, going back to being human, going back to these ancient grief practices that have now fallen out of practice in modern day Western culture. And at the very beginning of our conversation, you said there was a voice that prompted you to go here next. And yet so much of what you do is about going back. And so I really think that just, just so much of the work that you're putting out into the world is drawing from these old, old roots and bringing them up towards the future. I just get this sense of, that the voice of go here next is really about look back and bring forward with you. Uh, I'm taking a moment to appreciate yeah. how that voice has guided you in your work, because I think that so much of grief work today feels this pressure to be pioneering and to be discovering something new. Um, there's so many books out about the, the missing stage, the sixth stage, this, you know, the mystery component of grief, when in reality, I think there's so much benefit into looking, looking back to how previous cultures have done things. Um, I do want to talk about this merciless mother scream that you talked about at the beginning of our interview. And again, with things like wailing or, or keening coming from other cultures and where that comes from for you and how you felt permission to make that kind of sound in a space that's so institutionalized as a hospital. There is no awareness of environment when, when that scream comes, it doesn't really matter where you are or who is around. There is no, 
there's just nothing that stop that can stop it. It is primal, instinctual, and in some way now I recognize it as that what saves you, that's what saves you, you know, is is that your body knows to just do it and not hold, you know, and not look around and see if anyone's watching. That level of loss is just there's nothing that could stand in the way of that scream. And that scream didn't just happen in the hospital. It happened over and over again through my neighborhood when I would walk. <laughs> um, I would go down by the creek and I would scream. And there, you know, when I started to come back into my body out of the shock a little bit more, I did start to feel like, can anybody hear me? And then I asked myself if I really cared. And I didn't, you know, it was like, I, I'm saving myself right now, you know, and I actually wrote a lot about that screen because it wasn't, it wasn't a screen that I had ever made before. It wasn't a sound that had ever come out of me in, in before ever. And it was really um, a mix between like an animal cry and a toning, like if you hear the, the monk's toning, and then a primal kind of, like you could just picture clawing your way up to the heavens, you know, kind of feeling inside. And it would just come out in all these different tones and sounds. And it, it made me want to get down on all fours, you know, and become wild. It just was so primal and so beyond. There was nothing I could do to bring him back. And there was nothing I could do about the level of longing. And so the, to me, the scream was that, that acknowledgement of the pain and that I knew I was going to carry forever. And then the, the longing for where is my baby? You know, where is my baby? And how do I find him? And who has him? And where did he go? And so that scream, um, you know, now it's interesting. I just went to a grief ritual with Francis Weller. He's in my film. I really love him a lot. And, you know, we were in the Mercy Center in San Francisco, and it was very institutional, you know, um, place. And I had done a lot of grief rituals with Sanbonfu Some, who is from the Zagara tribe of Africa, and she's passed on uh, since then. But I would, I would sit in the grief ritual, and I'd watch her go down to the altar, and she would just instantly just completely and totally wail. Like there was not, nothing between her and the grief inside of her. And she would just instantly go into wailing and crying and letting it all go. And then she'd stand up and walk back and continue drumming and leading the grief ritual. And I was like, how does she do that? You know, and how is she so free in her grief? How does she let that move in her? And I went to Francis's grief ritual and here I am, you know, seven and a half years later and I went to the altar and I sat down and I, you know, everyone was in a contained kind of grief and I just let loose, you know, my cries, my screams, my knee, my tears, you know, my breathing and I just let it happen. And then I got up and I walked away and smiled at the people who were there to greet me and continued dancing until it was time to go back to the grief altar again. You know, it's like, and then when I asked Francis after the grief ritual I said what is that how did I how is that that we can do that and he said you now know how to grieve you know how to grieve you've taught yourself how to be a griever and I just everything inside of me just you know it was like I had arrived at some sort of 
beautiful art that I never imagined I would ever, ever get a hold of in any way, shape, or form because it ran me for so many years. That grief ran my life, you know. And so learning that art of how to truly let the ha- let it happen, the scream happen, and then get up and cook dinner, you know. So that's a little bit about the scream. I love this notion of you just taught yourself how to grieve because I think that's essentially what all of us are trying to do is teach ourselves what grief looks like to us and then how to grieve over and over and over again. Victoria, I've so loved this conversation with you and please let all of us know where we can find the documentary, host a watch party, get in touch with you, all that jazz. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you for having me today. I, you know, I'm in the middle right now of, of launching the film, and I think the film is a really great place to start. It kind of gives you a view of m- me and my life and where I come from and my approach, and that is at rememberdocs.com. Um, remember as in remember docs, D-O-C.com. And we're in the middle also of making an educational cut of that film. So I'll start to take that around to various institutions and schools and show the film. Um, you can actually do a film showing and invite me to your area and I will run a grief ritual or a group after watching the film. Um, I have a website that I'm working on right now called Life Cycle Center. So lifecyclecenter.com. And right now I'm working on a community grieving uh, platform that, you know, people from anywhere and everywhere can connect into groups and we'll go through a six-week process together uh, doing uh, all sorts of things in the grief world. And so that's one program I'm developing. I'm also in the middle of developing a professional training for people that work with grief. Um, specifically that are having clientele that are facing really, you know, complicated grief or compounded grief or traumatic grief. And I walk through six weeks with them, just helping them incorporate some of these practices into their, uh, you know, their clientele work so that they can feel more comfortable when these, you know, big events hit the people that they're working with. And so those are some of the things I'm working on. Other than that, you can just actually just call me. I like to remain available and I do Zoom and all kinds of work with people, um, both locally, in person, and over the phone and by Zoom in whatever venue. Um, But I like to stay accessible to the one-on-one as well. And my number is 541 Two six one one eight seven zero. So not everybody likes the internet, and not everybody has the brain power for internet when they're in the grief world. So just pick up the phone and give me a call, and give me a couple of days to get back. But I, I I really enjoy working one-on-one with people as well, helping them design personal ritual, helping them work through their moments. Um, I've been known to take calls in the middle of the night. Um, I have a commitment to remain accessible. So that's. Uh, kind of how you can find me right now. That's pretty incredible. And I've actually never had any guests give out their personal phone number on the show before. Um, so yeah. that's, I mean, that's some radical grief support right there. So grief growers, if you're looking for someone on call today, who will get back to you in a relatively short amount of time, consider calling Victoria. That's pr- I've never heard anything like that before. And that's really phenomenal. Mm-hmm. The old way, the old-fashioned old way. Maybe that's me speaking as a millennial. I'm like, that's amazing. 
here's me. If you if you text me like the phone number for uh, for the coming back podcast, I'll get back to you within 24 hours. But yeah, if you call, I'm like, no, oh, you have to leave a message. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, Sylvia, I will just say, like, you know, when someone's really, really, really in grief, it just doesn't work to get on the freaking computer and try and keep up with, you know, your eyes. I don't know, just everything is off, you know, you're in a different world and voice to voice can really save a person, you know, I never want to cut that piece off and, and, and hold that out, you know, it has to be personal. Grievers have to be personal with other grievers <laughs> because we need each other. That's what's really going to make the difference for grievers is to get with other grievers, you know? Well, and there's so much that's translated through the voice too that you just can't get on the screen, which Absolutely. is why all of you are here listening today because podcasts just do do the work of telling the story so much differently than something static or impersonal like a book or an article online does. So, oh my goodness, Victoria, this has been such a meandering adventure about grief and loss and ritual and your son and the documentary Remember as well. So thank you so much for joining us here on Coming Back today. I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you for having me, Shelby. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Victoria Markham for coming on to share the story of your son's death and how ritual is allowing you to release that merciless mother scream. You can find Victoria's documentary, Remember, at rememberdoc.com. That's rememberdoc.com, where you can share, stream, or download it today. The trailer alone gives me chills, so you know that this is going to be a good one, Grape Growers. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby You will instantly unlock access to weekly grief journaling prompts and monthly live calls with me. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. There are a lot of books about how grief changes us, but what about how grief changes our friendships? I'm working on a new book right now about how grief impacts our closest, longest, and most intimate relationships with others. 
If you'd like to share a story about how grief has changed your friendship, made it more awkward, or ended it entirely, please head to shelbyforsythia.com friends to fill out a submission form. You might just have your story published in my next book, All About Grief and Friendships. Once again, that link is shelbyforsythia.com friends with an S. Thank you so very much in advance for allowing me to read, witness, and learn from your stories on grief and friendship.